Welcome to Skim This. I'm Will Livingston. And I'm Blake Lumerwin. We're producers on the show. And since Alex Carr is on vacation, we're bringing you the news this week. You might have heard recently about quiet quitters in the workplace. It's a TikTok hashtag that became a Wall Street Journal article that now everybody's talking about. We break down why workers are saying no to getting to the office before nine and yes to doing the bare minimum and what it means for the future of the workplace. And Team Biden got people buzzing after announcing student debt relief for millions of borrowers. We've got the Secretary of Education to walk us through it. We also have the latest on a couple of this week's big headlines. And finally, to close out the show, why American women are embracing hot pink and channeling their inner Barbie girl. We're here to make you smarter. And the news less overwhelming. I'm Will. And I'm Blake. Let's skim this. We're going to start with the big news out of Washington this week. President Biden says he's making good on a big campaign promise, student debt relief. Borrowers making less than $125,000 a year, or $250,000 for married couples, will be forgiven up to $10,000 in federal loan debt. Those who received federal Pell Grants can get up to $20,000 of debt canceled. We sat down with Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona to learn more about what's coming down the pipeline. We'd love to start by having you, as we say, skim this announcement for us. In just a couple sentences, what's happening with student loan debt forgiveness? Unprecedented, once-in-a-lifetime federal support and loan forgiveness. 43 million borrowers across the country, they're eligible for up to $10,000 loan forgiveness. $20,000 for those who have loans and are eligible for the Pell Grant, all right? So there's certain qualifications there. Folks who have a little bit more need are eligible there. So if, if your income is under $125,000, um, you're eligible for these loan forgiveness amounts. We're just as proud of some of the changes we're making to the policies that got us into this mess that we're in now. So that includes making sure that loan payments are reasonable, that people are not paying more than they can afford, because that's what puts them in default. We're improving public service loan forgiveness. You choose to serve the public, we want to have your back and provide loan forgiveness. We want to increase accountability in our higher education institutions so that the costs, which have skyrocketed over the last couple of decades, we tamper those down and we make sure higher education provides a good return on investment. And I talked about the Pell Grant. Those are intended to get students who financially don't have the resources necessarily to go on to college. We want to double the Pell Grant to make college more accessible to more people. That's what we're trying to do. We're excited about it. What about for people who don't have federal loans, but instead have loans from private sector lenders? Are they going to see relief from this? Yeah, today's announcements are for those who have federal loans, but we recognize that there are other loans out there. And it's not out of the question that we're going to explore ways to support those borrowers. Look, at the end of the day, debt is debt. And we know that too many Americans are, are held back because of the loan debt. Education loan debt shouldn't be a life sentence. We're eager to make sure we fix broken systems. So when does this become reality? When are people going to see their balances reflect the debt forgiveness? Does that happen automatically? That's the million-dollar question. Look, we recognize millions and millions of people want to have that answer. What does this mean for me? This is what we're asking folks to do. Go to studentaid.gov slash debt relief. Register there for the automated emails that we're going to send out. Now, you heard also that the loan pause is going to end at the end of this year which means 
we want to make sure those who are getting loan forgiveness have the information that they need before then. We want to make sure that we're able to provide the communication to those who are going to have that loan relief so that they're not paying on something that they're going to have relief. The best way to do it, go to studentaid.gov slash debt relief, get those emails. We're going to be sending information out. This is exciting, but we have 43 million people asking questions. We want to make sure we're giving them clear information, concise. We're making this process simple. People don't need to go through bureaucratic red tape to get this done. We want to get this done right away. Critics say that this is a bad time to forgive large amounts of debt because it could undermine efforts to curb rampant inflation that we're seeing. How did those concerns factor into this decision? Well, look, before this announcement was made, this president has done more to address the deficit uh, than any other, really. Look at the results of this last year and a half, okay? But when it comes to inflation and the argument that this is going to increase inflation, well, look, people haven't been paying for two years. People that make over $125,000 that are not eligible for relief, they're going to start paying. That's about $4 billion a month. That's going to tamper down the, the inflation. In fact, it's going to offset the relief that's going to those people who are really struggling and can use some support. Some people have called for upwards of 50K to be forgiven in order to address racial disparities. What response do you have to people who say that this doesn't go far enough? Yeah. You know what? The president campaigned on 10,000. Today, he announced 20,000 for those who are eligible for Pell. Let me tell you, Black borrowers are twice as likely to be Pell recipients. One out of every four Black borrower today learned that their debt will be canceled. That's huge. That's significant. So when it comes to addressing inequities, the targeted features of this plan is aimed at addressing inequities, right? If you're over 125000 in salary, you're not going to get the same benefit. This is intended for those who either historically have been marginalized or have been impacted by the pandemic more. And there's a bigger issue here, which is that higher ed is getting more and more expensive and puts a lot of Americans into debt. What is being done to solve the larger issue of education costs? And is student loan forgiveness incentivizing colleges to keep costs high? You know, it's interesting because while student loan forgiveness is going to get a lot of the attention today, I'm just as proud of the income-driven repayment work and what we're doing to fix public service loan forgiveness and what we're doing to increase accountability in higher education institutions. We've done more in a year and a half to shut down those places that are taking advantage of students. Corinthian, ITT, we told DeVry that they're responsible for some of the loan debt that their students have because they're taking advantage, but they're not selling students what they were telling them they were going to get. We're expecting a better return on investment in higher education institutions. We're going after those for-profits that are trying to make money off first-generation college students that are chasing the American dream. We're not afraid of naming and shaming folks who are taking advantage of students. So loan forgiveness here, but what good is loan forgiveness if in five years we're in the same spot? We've got a lot, a lot of work to do at the department and we're eager to do it. What went into deciding the amount that was going to be forgiven and the income thresholds? How did the administration decide to draw those lines? They can be pretty arbitrary, you know, like someone in San Francisco who's making 126000 a year. They're just over the line. Yeah, we recognize, you know, that there are a lot of questions about that. But look, what we tried to do is target relief on those who we felt would benefit most. And then those who still have debt through the income-driven uh, repayment process, it's going to be more manageable. It's going to be a little bit easier to, to swallow the, the debt repayment because we're making it easier on our borrowers. Secretary Cardona, thank you so much for talking to us. Okay, you still have questions about this, and so did we. Here's one. How do you know if you qualify for that higher threshold of 20K? Like, 
What if you were only a Pell Grant recipient for one semester? Does that count? The Biden administration says, if you received any Pell Grant money and you're below that 125K income threshold, you qualify for that 20,000 in debt forgiveness. Here's how to check on your Pell Grant status. Log into your free application for Federal Student Aid Account, aka FAFSA. Then, check out your student aid report. Details on all the aid you got should be there. Another question. Usually, waived debts are taxable income. So, will we have to pay state taxes on this forgiven debt? When it comes to federal taxes, no. State taxes might be a different story. Most states follow the federal rules when it comes to what gets taxed, but some states don't. New Jersey, Arkansas, and Mississippi are a few. Best to talk to a local tax professional about whether you're gonna be on the hook. And finally, about that income threshold. What years are we talking about when it comes to that 125,000 cap? The White House says if you earn less than that cap in either 2020 or 2021, you're good. For more answers to all your money questions, check out theskim.com slash money. And while you're there, sign up for The Skim's money newsletter. Here are some other headlines from the week's news, plus the context on why they matter. For the first time, a Louisville police officer has been found criminally responsible in the killing of Breonna Taylor. On Tuesday, a former detective in Louisville, Kentucky, admitted that she helped mislead the judge who produced the warrant that ultimately led to Breonna Taylor's death in 2020. Kelly Goodlett pleaded guilty in federal court to a count of conspiracy after admitting she worked with another detective to lie on the application for the warrant, and then lied again to cover their tracks later. Goodlett is the first officer to be convicted following the 2020 raid that helped spark nationwide police brutality protests. This comes as federal investigators turned to Arkansas after a video of police beating a man in the town of Mulberry went viral. All three officers seen in that video have been suspended, and the Department of Justice says they've started a civil rights investigation. As air raid sirens wailed across Ukraine, marking six months of combat today, Russian missiles pummeled a railway station in the Dnipropetrovsk region. Ukraine marked a sober holiday this week. The country's Independence Day fell on the six-month anniversary of the start of Russia's invasion, and it was a violent day. 25 civilians were killed in a Russian missile attack on a train station in Kyiv. After half a year at war, here's where things stand. After months of attacks, Russia says it controls about 20% of Ukraine's territory and that it's taken the Luhansk region. Russian troops have been trying to advance in the eastern part of the country and continue to block the port city of Odessa in the south. But Ukraine still controls its capital, Kyiv. And now, shelling from both sides threatens Europe's largest nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, which has Europeans biting their nails about the risk of nuclear fallout on the continent. According to the UN, thousands of Ukrainian civilians have been killed and millions of people have been displaced. The EU is already starting to worry about a winter without Russian oil. And the threat of a global food crisis is still looming because grain exports from Ukrainian ports are blocked or slowed. The US and Europe have sent billions of dollars and weapons to Ukraine. And this week, the US announced a record-breaking nearly $3 billion aid package. 
For more on the six months of the war in Ukraine and the toll it's taken, check out our show notes. We've got a link to a piece there on theskim.com with photos and perspectives from women photojournalists who've been covering the war. Last week, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. One of the big ticket items for the climate section in that law was a tax credit for electric vehicles. But there's a snag. Or should I say, short circuit? Turns out, the qualifications to get that full tax credit are pretty tight. We'll break down what those sticking points are and all the breakers Americans need to flip to get that EV tax credit. All in 60 seconds. The fine print says that Americans buying a new EV can get $7,500 for a new car and $4,000 for a used one. But first hurdle, the new tax credits come with income restrictions. If you're planning to buy new, single Americans need to make no more than $150,000 by themselves, or double that for couples. That caps a little lower if you're buying used. In addition to income restrictions, there'll be price restrictions, so super expensive cars won't qualify. It also matters where your electric car was assembled. Currently, tax credits are available for any electric vehicle, regardless of country of origin. But starting on January 1st, 2023, your EV has to have its final assembly here in the US. Plus, some of the battery components have to come from North America or a country we have a free trade agreement with. Don't worry, there are some options. The Department of Energy has already released a list of more than two dozen cars that fit the bill including a few models from this small car company, Tesla, if you've ever heard of it. But don't give up on your dream car yet. Customers can still get partial credits for EVs that meet most of the requirements. So don't get off the wait list for that sweet new ride. Okay, that was like 75 seconds. Want us to skim a question from the news? Send an email to audio at theskim.com. about you, but my TikTok for you page has sounded like this all week. I just learned about this quiet quitting. Had never heard of it before. Here's the thing about quiet quitting. My take on the whole quiet quitting conversation that's going on right now. Quiet quitting is a new phenomenon taking the workplace by storm. And no, we're not talking about silently walking off the job. We're going to break down what quiet quitting is and isn't, why it's taking off right now, and what it means for the future of the workplace. To help us do that, we called up a reporter who's been looking into all of this. I'm Erica Pandy, and I'm a business reporter at Axios. Okay, first of all, what is quiet quitting? It's a TikTok hashtag that became a Wall Street Journal article that now everybody's talking about. The whole movement is about staying on the payroll at your job, but making time for other fulfilling activities outside of work. Work is one part of my life, and I'm going to collect the paycheck and get by, but I'm not going to make it my whole life. So it basically means doing what's expected of you and what's in your job description and nothing else. This idea isn't exactly new, but this current trend and the conversation around it is mostly showing up in a certain kind of workplace. This is obviously only relevant to a, a privileged few. There's no such thing as quiet quitting if you're in the majority of workers who are working in-person jobs, essential jobs. 
So it does really only apply to white collar workers. And even within that, those who have been lucky enough to have companies who have allowed hybrid and remote work. People are interpreting quiet quitting to mean a lot of different things. Some say it just means slacking off at work, while others say it's really about creating boundaries between work and life. Whether or not you fully reject the idea that we all have to work, one thing is clear. Quiet quitters are saying no thank you to hustle culture and glorifying the grind. And Pandy says the idea of quiet quitting really blossomed during the pandemic because our working lives and our ideas about work changed a lot. I think the reason for it is a lot more about the pandemic and remote work. You know, we've had for the past few years been able to stay home, a lot of us, been able to have a little bit more flexibility in our days. And then you've got this generation of people, Gen Z, younger millennials, who came of age as workers during this time. So a lot of these folks are joining the workforce, getting their first job as remote workers. And so the only life they know is this flexibility. You have this realization that life is short. I should spend it the way I want to. And it's all part of that. And there's data to back up this vibe shift. A Gallup survey in 2021 found that for the first time in a decade, employee engagement had declined. And Gen Z and younger millennials had especially low work engagement during the first quarter of this year. And that's kind of concerning because they're the ones who come to the workplace with this energy to sink their teeth into something new. Gen Z is unique in that they don't want work to be everything, but they also want work to be more than just work, right? And what that means is they want to work for a company that they believe in, that they can feel good about. And not every company can be, you know, saving the world, but every company can have a dynamic leadership team, a purpose and a mission that you can really believe in. Of course, there are haters. There have been plenty of shouts of nobody wants to work anymore and complaints about laziness. But there's also been a ton of enthusiasm for putting up boundaries between work and life. It's really resonating with people of all ages. You had older readers saying, I'm a baby boomer. My grandson is embracing this philosophy and I love it for him because I wish my life could have been like that. And then you have people saying, yes, this could mean slacking off at work, but it could also mean just, you know, let's redefine work as a 40 hour a week thing. Like, is that really so bad? Despite the cultural grip quiet quitting is gaining, Pandy warns that we should be realistic about the things that could put a damper on this trend. Right now, we have this really hot labor market and companies really need workers. And so if the youngest, hottest talent is saying we want more work-life flexibility, more work-life balance. We want more from you. They're going to have to give it to them. And if they start to kind of crack down, people will just go to other companies that aren't cracking down. But this labor market will change eventually. And if you need to show up early and leave late to keep the job, then people will do that. But Gen Z workers aren't going anywhere. And as we've seen with trying to get workers to return to office, it's hard to take away what's been the standard for the last two years. So what can employers actually do to make quiet quitters less inclined to quietly quit? Setting a culture that they believe that work is not everything. There's a couple ways to do that without slacking on your productivity or slacking on your goals. One, really take seriously when people are off, let them be off. Like really set a no exceptions policy at your company of when people are away, they should completely be away so they actually feel refreshed. And then the other thing is engage these workers. 
I really hope companies respond by saying, okay, let's make it engaging for you. Let's not make it all about road tasks. So you, you feel passionate on the hours that you're on. And then when you're off, you're off. This generation really has been craving mentorship. Give them that mentorship. And maybe those quiet quitters who are actually just using it to work for two hours, then go chill out, will work for maybe eight hours. And I don't know, I don't think we're going to get to the point of having siestas in the middle of the day like they do in Spain, but maybe we will all go home at five and get to do something fun. Well, when you put it like that, that sounds pretty reasonable, don't you think? If it's felt like you're in the movie Life Size recently, you're not alone. From Valentino's fall collection of exclusively hot pink to the internet-breaking photos from the set of next year's Barbie movie, it seems like everyone got the same memo. 2002 called, and they said hot pink is back in. To take a look inside the dream house, we called up a fashion expert to break down all things Barbie core. I'm Catherine Zarella, and I'm the fashion director of the off-duty section at the Wall Street Journal. Zarella told us that Barbie core means something a little different to everyone, but there are some unifying characteristics that pull together 2022's most vibrant trend. I think a lot of people actually develop their own definitions of Barbie core, but I think the number one unifying quality is pink, and it's hot pink, and it's bright pink. It's a very statement pink moment. But... It's not just about wearing pink for the sake of it. It's pink. Oh, and it's scented. I think it gives it a little something extra, don't you think? Something extra is right. Barbiecore is all about owning the look and feeling empowered by the clothes you choose. It's kind of this tinge of joy and letting go of that fear of being flamboyant and of wearing the big shoes, the wild accessories, and the short skirt all in one outfit. What sparked this sudden urge to bring our childhood toys to life? It's a combination of a a lot of different factors. We're coming out of lockdown and there's been this kind of dopamine dressing or joy dressing as some people call it, which is really putting together outfits that maybe it's not something you would have worn pre-pandemic. It's something that's really energetic and uplifting. Over the years, Barbie has taken her fair share of criticism for perpetuating unrealistic beauty standards for women. And Zarella told us those influences are a part of what's creating so much fuchsia fever right now. A lot of women feel like this is a way to take ownership of their femininity. Women who are embracing this trend who didn't feel represented by those old school 70s, 80s, 90s Barbies, they're owning the look for themselves. So you don't need to be blonde and Caucasian and have a perfect hourglass and, you know, be on your tippy toes and have a super tiny waist and, you know, perfect symmetrical features. And you can still embrace this look and have fun with it. It's almost a reclamation of what that possibly oppressive aesthetic could mean to women. You can wear the Barbie core look and the platform heels and the mini skirt one day, and you can wear overalls another day, and you can still be yourself and do whatever you want. And I think that that's what it's about. And Zarella says even if hot pink might not be your first instinct, there's joy in stepping outside with that little something extra on. I mean, I wear a lot of black. Most of my wardrobe is black. I have a Barbie core look, and it was pre-Barbie core. It was actually the very beginning of the pandemic. I got 
first edition vintage COVID. And I was sick for a while. And the first day I was allowed to leave my apartment, I put on a hot pink skirt with a matching hot pink, like cape coat and big platform shoes. And I went to the grocery store and I felt great. I, I was having so much fun. There was a little girl who like smiled and giggled when I was walking down the street. And it was this great feeling. I don't know if it's everyone's version of Barbiecore, but that's kind of the beauty of Barbiecore. You know, whether you want to put quotes around it or not, is everyone's version is a little bit different. It just brought me a lot of joy and happiness and I felt really good in it. Well, you know what they say, maybe life in plastic really is fantastic. I've got to go paint my toes hot pink, but hang on. Before we go, here's one quick thing you need to hear today. No, you're not listening to whales communicating underwater or to my stomach rumbling. You're listening to the sound of a black hole that's 240 million light years away. NASA shared this audio on Twitter this week and mixing the black hole sounds with some data the spaceheads over at NASA described this sound as a black hole remix. Now that's what I call music. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Rashan Ayish. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway. And the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Alex Carr will be back next week from her Formula One fantasy vacation, assuming her plane takes off. Delta, looking at you. Until then, check out The Skim's other podcasts. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.